1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, says this, Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Would you pray with me? Father, we are those who have gathered in the great hope of Jesus Christ. As we've taken communion this morning, as we've sung in him, it is our great expectation to be with you one day. A hope that is sure, that is fixed, that is preserved by your power for us. And so we will one day feast in Zion as the bride of Christ. And today, Lord, we gather as his body and we desire that we would understand who we are in the context of the body of Christ and also how we are to live one with another in a still more excellent way. So help us to comprehend and to love and to live this out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I have to begin with a confession. We had our life group this week, and a couple of us were talking about where we see good examples still today in our culture of of these concepts of diversity working in unity that we've been talking about in Corinth. And, And one arena that we came up with was that you still do occasionally see this in the arena of sports and athletics, teams that recognize We don't all want to be the same player. We don't want to all play the same position. We want to respect and recognize the differences and roles and functions and yet all come together and work as a team. And so I was trying to think if there was a good example from the world of sports and athletics to illustrate our theme this week. And I actually hopped online to go searching. And it was only then that it occurred that there is an athletic event this very day. So if you're a big football fan, I know I've just disappointed you tremendously, but it is Super Bowl Sunday, as it turns out. And I want to pose a question. What's the difference between great players and a great team? What's the difference between great players and a great team? And I'm sure I heard heart. Yeah, I'm sure there are many ways to answer this question. But I did a little searching around to see how coaches have dealt with that question throughout time. And I came across one by a feller named Tom Coughlin, former football coach for the New York Giants. I've known that fact for several hours now. (laughs) And he said this, championships are won by teams who love one another, who enjoy and respect one another, and play for and support one another. And I do believe that this morning as we come to the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to make almost the exact same point. And he's going to make that point and set it up for us this week, and then he's going to explore that point in the entirety of the next chapter that follows our text this morning. 
if you want to summarize this down, our main point this morning is pretty straightforward. Our fit in the body is important. That's what we've been talking about. Our fit in the body is important, but our focus as a body is even more important. And so, yes, it's important to know who you are and and the kind of member that you are and how you're meant to fit into this big thing called the church and your giftedness and how that can be best used. All of that is important, but it's not actually what we're supposed to be obsessing on. We have a credible diversity of fit in the body, but we should have a singular focus as a body. And that's what Paul's going to tell us about this morning. We've been learning just how diverse and yet unified the members of the body of Christ are supposed to be, but there is this missing piece to the puzzle of how a church functions successfully. And so Paul's going to, as I said, transition us from the focus on our fit to the focus on this missing piece of the puzzle. And you guys already know what it is because you know what comes next in 1 Corinthians. The missing piece of the puzzle is a deep, rich, godly love. And that is what we will spend some time looking at in the weeks ahead. And so let's trace that transition this morning from our fit in the body to our focus as a body. I think we can do so under three observations. If you're taking notes this morning, your first... Uh, your first heading there in your notes is this, accept God's design, accept God's design. You'll see that there in verse 28, which says this, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And Paul is doing more here than just surveying the various flavors of giftedness in the church. He really is outlining the design of the church. And no, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a great summary of how things work in the church. The church in Corinth had the privilege of being one of those churches right at the founding of the church, one of those who were able to be there at the beginning of God's work through his people in Christ. And so they would have been very familiar with what comes next in this verse. The problem is, however, they were living in rebellion against it. And so Paul is going back and reminding them, hey, we've covered this many times, but you've clearly forgotten. Remember how this works. And so here is how the church works. And it's helpful, I think, even for us to understand the way in which God established and founded the church And if you want to ask the question, how does God establish and found his church? You have to begin with the cornerstone. And you know who the cornerstone is. It's Jesus Christ. And I think I'll have some pictures for you. There we go. Jesus. As we have been reminded repeatedly, the church is built on, belongs to, was purchased by, and is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ. He is the cornerstone of the church. And he's not just sort of the figurehead of the church. The church is not a, a construction of man built in honor of Jesus Christ. The church is the work of Jesus built on Jesus Christ. And that's why you see this throughout the New Testament. If you just take those who quoted Psalm 118.22 alone, those who quoted from the Psalms about Jesus being the cornerstone, Matthew, Mark, And Luke all record Jesus referring to himself that way. Peter preached that verse in Acts chapter 4 and then wrote about it twice in 1 Peter. And then Paul uses this language in his letter to the Ephesians in a verse that we'll look at a little later. Everybody in the New Testament is focused on this reality. Without the life, 
and death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no church. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is a church, and Paul is underscoring how that church was established and how it continues. And so based off of the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Paul is then able to write here, and God has appointed in the church. And that word appointed is the same word he used back in verse 18, if you recall, when God, or excuse me, when Paul talked about how God has placed all the members in the body just as he desired. It's the same word in the original, and now he's elaborating on that. So he just briefly mentioned earlier, God's placed everyone in the body just as he wanted. And now he's saying, let me explain a little bit further. And notice he's breaking this appointment down into three numbered offices, first, second, third, and then a collection of representative gifts in the church. Then this, then this. So why break it down in this way? Well, as I said, I don't think Paul is just trying to show us the diversity of the church's members, but he's trying to show the design of the church's members and how that design unfolded in the establishing of the church. And so upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is built this first layer of appointments by God, that being the apostles and the prophets. When God began placing members in the body, he began with these offices of apostle and prophet. Paul uses the term apostle in his writings to the church in Corinth 15 times across 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So he's talking about this idea a lot. That means this is not a concept they're unfamiliar with. So what is an apostle? Well, apostle is a little bit like the word angel in that it has a very broad general meaning and it also has a pretty specific technical meaning. If you look at the word angel, for example, at the broadest sense, the word angel simply means messenger. And you'll see the word angel used to refer to various people throughout the New Testament sent as messengers on various tasks. However, when I said the word angel, you probably immediately thought of its more technical usage in reference to a particular kind of spiritual being that God sends as his messengers from heaven to us. And so angel has this broad general meaning and a narrow technical meaning. Apostle is similar. At its broadest, apostle can simply mean sent out. It was sometimes even used in the shipping industry of things that were prepared and sent out to be sold. And Paul does seem to use it in this broad sense at least once in 2 Corinthians 8.23 when he refers to Titus and the other brethren who had been sent out to Corinth and he refers to Titus and the other brethren who had been apostles with him, sent out ones with him. But in the majority of other cases and in the New Testament, and I believe in every single other case that Paul uses the word apostle, it refers to somebody who holds a specific office. Those who held this office included the original 12 disciples, minus Judas, Matthias, who, as you recall, at the beginning of Acts, was appointed to replace Judas, and Paul. To be an apostle meant you had to fit a very specific set of requirements. One, you had to be called out directly by Jesus Christ. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, as Paul 
references his personal calling to the office of an apostle. Secondly, you had to be one who had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, as Paul also wrote to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15.7, when he refers to him and the other disciples seeing the resurrected Christ. You also had to be one who had demonstrated the legitimacy of that office by affirming wonders and miracles, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.12, that the signs of a true apostle had been performed among them. And with this office came great authority during the founding of the church. Unlike most of the other offices and gifts, apostles typically had a ministry not to a single local body, but to the churches. And apostles were those through whom scripture was revealed and their counsel was understood to represent the highest spiritual authority among the churches under Jesus, a fact that Paul points out to Corinth on more than one occasion. This is one reason Paul begins so many of his letters where he's intervening in thorny issues and divisions by introducing himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he's not needing to exert his authority, he prefers to introduce himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And nowhere was this more true than in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 9-2, you can just hear Paul's heart to these people when he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. If any church is going to challenge my apostleship, maybe it's some of those other churches that have never met me, but if I was ever an apostle, it was to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so when Paul talks about God appointing apostles in the church, you know there's just a, a heartfelt personal side to this as he considers himself so closely linked in that role to the people he loves here in this church. The office of apostles has passed away in this sense. We are still all to be God's sent out ones, but there will never again be a season in which you will have the opportunity to be personally commissioned by Jesus Christ, see the resurrected Jesus Christ, and minister as those bringing new revelation about Jesus Christ now that the canon of Scripture has completed and this generation has passed away. And that brings us then to the office of prophets, those appointed second in the church. And here again, as a particular office with a narrow definition or a more broad gift or act. Most broadly, prophesying could be anything from being able to foretell the future, and I would note with 100% accuracy, or you're not a real prophet, or the ability to tell what God had already told and proclaim it again to God's people or to the world. And so sometimes that's summarized as foretelling and forthtelling. And in its broad sense like this, you see the gift of prophecy throughout the church, throughout both men and women, throughout the New Testament. There seems to have been, however, a particular, again, office of prophet that works very closely with the apostles in affirming the authenticity of their revelation and disseminating God's revelation throughout the churches. And so you see these two very closely linked in a number of places, going all the way back to Jesus himself in Luke 11:49, when he's actually condemning some of the Jewish lawyers. And he tells them, you are going to persecute and kill the apostles and the prophets. 
these two groups that are about to come and work closely together. And Paul refers to these prophets here as those who come second only to the apostles. They are referred to again by Paul in Ephesians 4.11 as second in the list of gifts to the church, right behind the apostles. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 2.15, you see Paul talking about the Jews driving the apostles out of the region around Jerusalem, the same region in which they also, Paul goes on to say, killed Jesus and the prophets. And so you see Jesus Apostles, prophets, in that order, grouped number, a number of times in this technical, narrower sense. And I think we're getting the picture that Paul is laying down here. You have a foundation of Jesus, and then upon that is built this second layer of the apostles and the prophets who work together to complete and to confirm the revelation of the New Testament and establish the church. And in once Once that is complete, once the revelation of God is complete, once the church has been established, we would expect the emphasis then to shift from those gifts of establishment to those things that continue the proclamation of God's complete revelation and that edify and care for the ongoing needs of the body. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what we see in Paul's list. That brings us to our third layer. We can finally put the roof on our little building, and that's us. We've got Jesus as the cornerstone, a strong supporting foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and then there is the rest of us gifted members of the body. One passage where you can see these three layers clearly, and it's really helpful, is in Ephesians 2, 19-20, where Paul writes to the, to the people there in Ephesus, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so I think if you want one place to go and see what the structure and design of the church is, there it is. Jesus the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and then the rest of us, called as saints, built on top of that. And so that brings us then to the third office in our list in 1 Corinthians, and that is the office of teachers. Clearly, these are people, would be people who have the gift of teaching, but also perhaps here referring to a more formal role. It may be the same role or a slightly broader category as the office Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, that of pastor-teacher. Those who hold this office are not receiving any new revelation. That's not their job. What they are doing is faithfully explaining and applying what God has said so that the body will know what has been revealed and be able to live it out properly. This office helps keep the compass of the church fixed to true north so that we will not drift away from the truth. As you recall, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Teachers have the responsibility to ensure that this truth is clearly articulated generation after generation until Jesus returns. This might be a good place to pitch our Sunday school classes next hour. I don't know. I'll think about it. In response to that truth, the rest of the members should employ their gifts as what God has said continues to be 
revealed and taught, excuse me, not revealed in the sense of new revealed, his revelation is taught forth, we are to continue to live that out and to make that come into reality through our gifts. And Paul rattles off a representative list of them in the rest of verse 28. Miracles, healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues, just rattling these off. We've discussed most of those gifts already recently, so we won't deep dive onto all of them again, but it is worth mentioning the two new ones that showed up here that we haven't seen before. And the first is that gift of helps. Interestingly, this is the only time that word appears in the New Testament, and it means just what it sounds like, helping people. Some have gifts that are obviously charged with supernatural power, like those in Corinth who could work miracles. And others have gifts that are less obviously from the divine, like helping others. But check this out. Helps belongs as much in this list as those who could work miracles, do healings, even the apostles themselves. They're part of the same thing. They come from the same source. All of God's work, no matter how flashy, is from the Spirit, for the same body, and full of the same power. And so Paul's already really challenging the Corinthians, because they so desperately want those flashy, amazing-looking gifts. And Paul says, God puts apostles in the church, and they're like, those guys are cool. They do miracles. They get to boss everybody around. They write letters and then we have to read them forever because some of them are from God. And Paul says, you know who else is cool in the church? People who help people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he brings up this gift of administrations. And this gift is perhaps a little misleading to the modern reader when it's translated here as administrations, because I think when we hear administration, we might think of it primarily in an office environment where it's focusing on skills of organization, system development and execution, logistical oversight, those sorts of things. But if you look at this word, it's used twice in the New Testament to refer to somebody who's piloting a ship. Old translations often use the word governments instead of administration here. And several recent translations use the word leadership. And I think if you put all three of those together, the ability to govern, the ability to lead, and the ability to administrate, then you have the sense of this critical gift in the life of the church. And it's hard to think of two gifts more universally helpful and needed by the church. And yet, how many Christians in Corinth do you think were clamoring for helps and administrations? I think, as we've discussed before, these vital gifts are not appreciated as much as they should be. I was thinking, suppose you had two congregations, one entirely made up of members gifted in tongues and miracles, and another congregation entirely made up of members gifted with helps and administrations. In 10 years, which congregation do you think would still even exist? I can tell you, if we did not have people with a gift of helps and administrations, I don't know that Valley Bible Church would exist for 10 minutes, let alone 10 years. So much goes on through this body, 
vital to its health and its ongoing ability to carry out the will of Jesus Christ through our precious brothers and sisters that have these gifts. And they ought to be honored right in there with the apostles, with the prophets, and with any other gift, no matter how showy. The Corinthians certainly didn't think this way. And you know, as Paul's been going through this list, they're just waiting for tongues, right? That's the one they're hung up on. And then tongues, and then tongues. And they're probably wondering why it shows up dead last in his list. And I think that's part of the point for them, and it's part of the point for us. In order for any church to be healthy, there has got to be a love for and an enthusiasm for God's design. And that is something that we must strive for at every level, especially today in our context. We have to celebrate, not just affirm, but celebrate God's good design for the individual as men and as women created equally yet distinctly in the image of God, as a good design. We need to celebrate the diversity and equality in the church. We need to celebrate the diversity and equality among the nations. We need to celebrate what that looks like in our families and in our marriages, in our offices and in our workplaces. We need to celebrate the laws of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God that govern the definitions and the functions of all these institutions. And we need to celebrate the authority of God and how that authority is delegated throughout his human institutions and is meant to be used. Not just affirm, but celebrate and love the design of God because if we do not see these things as good and desirable, we will not long follow them. And if we do not follow them, we will fall so quickly into divisions and deceptions until both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are indistinguishable from the world around it, which was exactly what was happening in Corinth. And it is still happening today. I know many of you are much more on the front lines of this than me. I'm not too worried about showing up at church and getting in trouble for having done, you know, praying out loud at work. Some of you are, though. I'm not too concerned that my wife homeschooling my children is going to be teaching them doctrines contrary to the Word of God. But I know many of you are having to work hard to disciple your children against ideas that are being taught them that defy God's designs. And our enemy is really starting to turn the screws, isn't he? And he does that by making a public mockery of God's designs. And so you're surrounded by this barrage of belittling. He makes a supposed intellectual mockery of God's designs by painting a picture that only fools would believe such things. He makes an ethical mockery that to hold to God's designs makes you hateful. He tries to make it costly to follow God's designs and to make it costly if you will not celebrate the subversion of God's designs. It's a long con game, slow, withering criticism that backs us into the corner until how many of us as Christians just sort of find ourselves in the corner, staring at our shoes, muttering something about, well, I mean, it's what the Bible says, so I'm supposed to believe it, and I'm really sorry. 
that's not what the church is meant to be. So how do we fight against that slow encroachment of embarrassment or distrust or a lack of love for the good designs of our good God? Well, here's one practical, practical thing that I think might be helpful. Try the Amen Bible Reading Challenge. If you can think of a shorter name for it, let me know. But I'm going to call it the Amen Bible Reading Challenge. And here's what I mean by that. Many of you have a read through the Bible in a year habit. That's fantastic. And if you don't, Maybe this is the year to give it a try. There's a ton of plans out there, chronological or thematic or from the beginning to the end or broken up into genres. Whatever flavor you want, say, I want to read through the entirety of God's word. And as I do, here's the twist. Determine that if God is to be loved and prized above all, then you will give a heartfelt amen after every single verse you read. And if you can't amen a verse because either you don't understand what it means, you don't agree with it, or you're embarrassed about it, then resolve, I will not move on until I have studied, wrestled, talked with others here in the body, and been able to come to the point where I can give full support and celebration to every word, every act, every design of our good God. I think too many of us Christians have gotten used to perhaps skipping past a couple chapters here and there because it looks scary and I'm not sure if that's going to rattle my faith or not. Let us be determined and convinced that we shall be embarrassed by no thing that our God has said, that we would be proud to have it repeated from our lips because we see it as good. So there's the Amen Bible reading challenge. Imagine if we all did that as a church. What a powerful tool it would be, not only for our own faithfulness, but in equipping us for our ability to disciple others as well, who will come to us with questions about those same things. It would transform indeed much more than, but certainly not less than, our appreciation of the body of Christ. Because only when we love God's design will we celebrate the diversity in the body as we should, organized in the way that God organized it. And that's why Paul emphasizes the order and structure of the body before launching into the rhetorical questions that we see now in verses 29 and 30. Not only do we need to accept God's design and love it, we need to admire gift diversity, admire the diversity in the body that's where Paul launches into this withering barrage. Speaking of withering barrages, here's another one. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? You seeing a pattern? This is one of those verses where the meaning is very simple. And so the main point isn't the meaning. The main point is the repetition. <laughs> right? The part that should impact us the most is not, wow, I didn't understand what you were saying until the very end, Paul. I think what we are to be affected by is the fact that Paul says, listen, no, listen again, no, listen again. You ever had like that experience as a parent, perhaps, right? where you know your kids understood the meaning of the English words out of your mouth the first time, but they hadn't heard what you were saying until the third or fourth time? Yeah, this is one of those. And once again, 
Paul is elaborating something he said earlier. Right? We saw in our last verse, Paul had simply stated earlier, God has placed members in the body just as he desired. And now he elaborates by saying, God has appointed apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, administrations, gifts of t- various kinds of tongues. And now he's coming back and he's saying, remember earlier when I told you, 1 Corinthians 12:19, if the body was all made up of one member, where would the body be? He says, let me drive that point home here. Apostles are first in both authority and in their role in the church. But look around, Paul says, did God want a church full of apostles? No. And so it isn't. Prophets, teachers, is God trying to make that the gold standard of church membership? No, he's not. And notice, he drops some of the less flashy gifts from this rhetorical chain here, right? He doesn't say, all are not helps or all are not administrations. Those just sort of disappear because he knows nobody in the church of Corinth is clamoring for the whole church to be full of helps. But maybe they should have been. Instead, he continues by listing miracles, healings, tongues, and the accompanying gift of interpreting those tongues. In other words, that complementary work of being able to speak or being able to understand an unlearned language. Does God want a church full of flash and pizzazz, is what Paul's saying. And the answer is no. He doesn't want that, and neither should we. When we appreciate, when we love God's design for the church, it would be sad to us to visit a church and find in it all one kind of gift, even if it was like all miracles. I mean, that would be a wild service to attend, wouldn't it? But we would walk in and we would go, how sad that so much of the body is missing from its function here. I hope they will someday get to enjoy the blessing of seeing mercy and seeing discernment and seeing helps and seeing administrations, and seeing teaching, and all the rest come together into the beautiful picture of a whole body able to carry out the full work of the church of Jesus Christ. And so here's a couple questions that I think can diagnose whether or not we are admiring God's wisdom in the diversity of the church, or whether we're making the same mistake as the Corinthians. And the first is this. Ask yourself, what gifts do I clearly not have but really wish I did? So not asking yourself, God, how have you gifted me? And saying, I really would love to do that thing. Because that might be actually God showing you your gift. But there are times when it is very obvious, I am not gifted to do that. And that makes me jealous. If you've found that thing, that's one of the Corinthian problems. And we need to say, God, help me to love the diversity in the body To such an extent, I am not jealous for anyone else's gift. Secondly, what gifts am I really glad I don't have? Right? Oh, man, I'm glad God didn't throw me in that class of Christian. If there is any gift in the body we do not hold in high esteem and honor, then that too must be repented from. When we can celebrate God's design truly from the heart and we can admire the diversity in the body without favoritism, without discrimination, then we are ready to find our proper fit in the body and joyfully carry out our function in the body 
However, just like a couple football teams are going to be proving later today, just knowing your fit and function is not enough. The team with the most skill today will have a good advantage, but it is likely that the team that has the best focus in how they carry that function out that will be ultimately victorious. And Paul ends this chapter with, with a transitional verse. He wants the Corinthians to understand the importance of spiritual gifts and how they are to be used, but he also wants them to understand that obsession with spiritual gifts is not the goal. The gifts are a means to an end, and that end is achieved when the church fixes its eyes on something even greater than gifts. And so briefly this morning, our last point is this, desire something greater than gifts. Verse 31 says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. There's a lot of ways to understand the first part of verse 31, and I confess I'm still a little confused by it. But here's what I think the best understanding of that is. I think that given that Paul is going to use this exact same phrase again twice in chapter 14 when he says, earnestly desire, that it means I want you to pay attention to something really important. And that something really important he's going to get to in chapter 14, and it's this. Stop thinking that the greatest gifts are the ones that are the most impressive. If you want a category for greatest gift, it's this, the gifts that edify the body as a whole. He's saying to them, there are some gifts like tongues that unless you're standing next to somebody who speaks Mandarin Chinese that you now can speak without having learned it, then speaking in Mandarin Chinese like right here, right now would edify maybe Hannah Snook and leave the rest of the body unedified. He says, seek those gifts that edify the whole body. In other words, stop having a selfish desire for gifts and start having a selfless desire to serve the whole body with your gifts. That's, that's what he's going to get to in chapter 14. And so what I think Paul is doing here is the classic Paul parenthesis. And now let's talk about this. But before we get there, because I know if I don't put this in here right now, you're going to miss the entire point of what I'm about to say. Even after everything I've clarified, I know you're going to take this and you're going to switch your envy and jealousy from one category to another category and keep sinning in the same way. And so before I can get to that in chapter 14, I need to tell you how it is that Christians are to carry out their gift no matter who they are. And that is a more excellent way. What is that way? Love. Turns out 1 Corinthians 13 was not written primarily so that pastors could have a go-to passage for wedding ceremonies. It was written primarily to help the church understand how every member was to use every gift for the building up of the body in love. And next week, we're going to begin to dive into what that looks like. But we end this week reminding ourselves that as important as our fit in the body is, even more excellent it is to understand our focus as a body on love. And if we will accept who we are in the body, celebrate who others are in the body, learn what love looks like in action towards the body, that under the headship of Jesus Christ and through the power of his one spirit, we will see, as Paul wrote, our love abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve the things that are excellent 
in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.